Well, uh, hello. Uh, hello. <laughs> now you're talking. <laughs> a, a, lot of, um, a lot of reading is, of course, drawing on the energy of the crowd. And they're silent, intense listeners. And then they're indifferent people who carry on texting as you're reading. <laughs> but, but with audiences on all, both sides of the Atlantic, it does depend on where you are. And in the Caribbean, it varies and shifts. And so I, I, I tend to... Um, uh, today, I'll try and draw on your energy and then give back to you as much as I can in the work. And, and I'm going to walk through my work as a story. I'm going to give you some poems because I began as a poet. I still am a poet. I'll give you a little bit of um, nonfiction because I've been writing more and more nonfiction because the saying is um, theorize or be theorized. That if you don't talk about your process, somebody else will talk about it on your behalf. And once they tell you how, what you are, it's hard to forget. So it's important to lay the tracks down first. So as you, and that means as a writer, you're also a reader, of course, and you're, all, you're, you're making the books that you've made on behalf of others and so forth. And then finally, I'm, I'm going to read a short story because um, <clears throat> born in London, grew up in Guyana, had a childhood in Guyana, in London as well, left, been in the States for the last 20 years or so. Um, the three landscapes, Caribbean, British, and US, have, I think, resulted in my um, non-choice of writing across, across genres, writing poetry, writing fiction, writing plays and essays. And um, I've only been able to account for that recently in thinking about why cross genres when writers are told to specialize. If you don't specialize, you're somehow failing. If you can't stick to one genre, it's because you're not able to do something well in it. You have to go somewhere else and look for you know, something, uh, authenticity somewhere else. And I realize actually it's not about looking for, for breaks and money. It really is about that I grew up in Guyana, that have been in London, and that have been in the US. And I've become intrigued by those three landscapes and crossing the Atlantic, being in the, by the Caribbean Sea. And I'm interested in trying to find ways to talk about that. And that, like a Nancy, a Caribbean, you know, the spider from Caribbean folklore, you want a kind of nimble flexibility to cope with that diversity. It isn't just a diversity of experience, it's a diversity of style um, and styles and life form and so forth. So I'll give you a kind of taste of all, of all three of that uh, as I go along. And then I'm going to leave a little bit of time for some questions or comments. I don't like to say questions because I think some people might have something to say back to me. Make it polite. <laughs> if I displease you, let me know quietly. Um, and that's about it. Okay, now I'll sit down actually. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm waiting for Vivi to arrive, so I was just, um, she's, she's coming and she apologizes for being a little bit late. She's on her way. This poem is called um, Bring Back, Bring Back. There is a ch childhood song we used to sing. I can't sing it. Not before five o'clock. What time is it? It's after five. Okay, not before, not before a gin and tonic. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, it is after five, yeah. You have to catch me later, but it basically, I'm going to talk. Huh? You sang at Calabash. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> One big difference. <laughs> the, reading was by, the reading was by the Caribbean Sea, and I'd been plied with rum. <laughs> right now, we were in Oxford, and it's much more polite. <laughs> so, 
But the, the song was um, Bring Back, Bring Back, Oh, Bring Back My, you know, thing. To me, to me. Okay. So that song is an, was for me an idea of trying to, a reclamation of memory <clears throat> and an idea of chant as a way back into remembering that if you can say something that people have been, a lot of people have been saying over and over again, that chant will take you into a space of recollection that's a kind of clarified space. Um, and there's an early memory in here in this poem. It's a 14-liner. Bring back, bring back. Bring back morning ice in enamel buckets, fetched two at a time for balance from standpipes set at village squares. Pipes shared by villages, too numerous to name properly and too few to do anything but name. For qualities shown by folk, interviewed by administrators in hard hats on horseback, way before Model T and the Wright's first flight, when my grandparents, mere tadpoles, swished around in their parents as nothing more than wishes thought up in fields while minding indolent cows, sheep, or goats, or while poised over washing on a ribbed scrubbing board. Bring them back as you would sprinters to a start line after a false start where one bolts and the rest follow. People said to me, is the one bolt Usain Bolt? And I said, no. <laughs> Although it's not a bad idea. <laughs> a clean slate. I, I was also thinking about literacy and um, learning to read and write <coughs> in Guyana, because I left the UK when I was two and a half, near almost three. Arrived in Guyana and learned to read and write in Guyana. When I landed in Guyana, of course, I, I was you know, talking, but I immediately heard a register that wasn't the English I'd left South London with when I landed there. And so I was always aware. And when I came back to London at nearly age 13, same thing happened again, but in reverse. And then when I went to school, the very first day in school, I remember walking up to a kid who looked a bit like me, a black kid, and I, say, I said to him in Guyanese, because I'd now mastered the, the dialect, hey, buana wa go on, which is, hello, my friend, how is it hanging? <laughs> and the black kid said back to me, you what, mate? <laughs> he had no idea what I said, and so I thought, whoa. So I had to do a quick nimble and Nancy adjustment and land in one of my eight legs. Is it eight legs? Yes, eight legs, <laughs> to make sure I didn't fall over. Because, and, and that kind of adjustment, you know, that's just on the register of the tongue, you know, that very first instrument, as it's called, that we kind of walk around with. But um, that is what this poem is a little bit about, some of those adjustments. But going back to Guyana, you'll hear to a word that's, a, a word that's um, balanje, which is a, a Hindi word for aubergine. And uh, Guyana is made up of 60% people from South Asia, 40% people of African descent, well, a bit less than that with a, Portu a small Portuguese um, superstructure. One of whom, one of those Portuguese was my grandfather, by the way, and I'll talk about him in a second. But, um, so here is um, a clean slate. Each morning, I worked up spit, aimed at my slate, and wiped shirt tail from corner to corner. Each day was a clean start, born again and born big so, as grown-ups love to say. The day before disappeared somewhere between my saliva and Terraline's shirt. The new day promised something hitherto not seen or guessed about. A cobweb not there, the previous 24 hours that overnight dew reveals. 
A for aubergine, known to us as Ballinger, B for bat for playing cricket, until I filled a slate with slant text, my left hand told my right hand brain was new. Coins on the sea, pressed by light. This morning sky, wiped of stars. Chalk off my shirt, climbing sun. The return. It's like a Zen saying, you can't step into the same river once. It used to be twice, but apparently you can't even do it once. You can imagine the river. It's also a John Ashbery image where he says that consciousness is this stream that sh it's like a river that passes right by you at, your, at head height, roughly. And as a writer, you dip into it, he does, and you pull out stuff and drop it on the page. And um, that idea of a stream of consciousness that he's pulling from is all about how he writes and what he puts down. And I, would, I got interested in this idea that um, it would always be available to you through some kind of expertise and return practice, continuous practice. And I wondered if the past would do the same, if I could chant it down. So in this poem, I drop a lot of Guyanese stuff in there. Labrish, which is just to talk. Gaff, which is to chat with, in a group. Backdam, which is a, a place that's drained by the Dutch in Georgetown. Georgetown is, um, Guyana is right, this is South America, Guyana is in the Northeast Coast, and a lot of the land is, is just a series of rivers and tributaries. And the Dutch, to make it habitable, had to drain it to, get, to create the, the city for, for people to live in. And those, um, that uh, 17th century work that they did is still the basis for the city to this day, um, how Georgetown operates. Kaichur is the world's um, single drop, longest single drop waterfall, or so the Guyanese say. <laughs> they compete with Venezuela, which has Angel Falls, which, is, which claims the record as well. And as you know, Guyana and, and um, Venezuela are in con a con big fight over um, the lines that the British drew to make Guyana. The Venezuelans said they robbed Venezuela of a lot of land, <laughs> which is that Brazilian basin that they share. Um, an Amazonian basin that is shared by Brazil and all the, the kind of Colombia and so forth. So you've got to imagine Guyana as a kind of civilized, so-called civilized, because inhabited by a lot of people, capital, but more, the more you go into the interior, the more you go into a wild space that's um, habited, inhabited by indigenous tribes, but very few Guyanese actually go in there. And you'll, you'll, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. The return. Weather, titter, stands for sister or no. No more ice pick and its flint on the blockhead of ice. Whether mama dot stands for grandma Dorothy or no. No more right hand cutlass swing at the left hand's juice and jelly. Whether cooperative Republic Village number 162 stands for Airy Hall or no. No more full frontal kiss of cars on the pronounced curves of the S road. That's the only road into town. Whether ginip or stinking toe or sour sop or jamoon stand for fruits or no. No more sprints from the house at the first smell of rain in nothing but our peeled skin. Whether to lime is to hang and to gaff or labrish is to shoot the breeze or no. No more shielding the wick of the oil lamp as I duck under the top half while I toe open the bottom half of the back door's half doors. Whether back dam stands for coca or no, no more going Dutch for a day trip to kike overall, where the Esuquibo spreads like a sea, where the Mazaruni and the Cayuni part mineral company. Whether kaichur falls 
for a record 741 foot single dropper. No, no more I turn, head spin, shuffle of up and down so that the falls rise and the forest canopy bows to the floor. Whether Guyana is Kanaima or no, whether I and I stands for you and me or no. At sea. All night, I rock, twist, and turn. I wish it was my baby who was on my mind. Blame that two-week crossing of the Atlantic by boat back in 62, 63, from England to Guyana, when I learned to rock and roll effortlessly, and the world, the whole liquid enterprise of it, seemed to be going someplace, leaving me behind or in the middle of nowhere, at a point that kept the horizon exactly in the distance, and brought dolphins to the side, then sent them off, and saw whales dipping and rising together, relocating an archipelago of sudden springs that died as suddenly as begun as they headed away, always away from me, dancing in reluctant sways, swivels, and spins on the spot in a world of flux. Railway. This poem, literally, as kids, we had one train line that ran from Georgetown to the interior. And in the mornings, a train would go into the interior. In the evenings, it would come back laden with lots of cut timber. You'll hear in here, and we used to wait for the train to come, take a nail, put some chewing gum on the nail, stick it on the track, and hide. The, the train would run over, the, run over the nail, flatten it, and make a knife. And then we'd go out and kill people. No, no. <laughs> no, no we didn't use it to kind of peel things and capture things. Um, no, and, and, but one thing about the tree, I learned that the wood was various kinds of wood from the interior that they were as a deforest, it's about deforestation. And so the, the names you'll hear are names for wood, different kinds of wood given to the trees by the indigenous tribes at the very end of the poem. Long before you see train, the tracks sing and tremble. Long before you know direction train come from, a hum announces it soon arrive. So we tend to drop on all fours, even before we look left or right. We skip the sleepers or walk along by balancing on a rail. We talk about the capital where the train ends its run from the interior, laden with the outsized trunks of felled trees. We always hide from it, unsure what the train will do if we stand next to the tracks. It flattens our nails into knives. It obliterates any traffic caught by it at crossroads. It whistles a battle cry, steam from the engine, a mood not to mess with or else. Rails without beginning or end, twinned hopes, always at your back, always up front, beckoning you on. Double oxen, huff, stump, hoof, stump, temper, tantrum, stampede, clatter, matter, head splitter, hear us, stooped with an air to the line. Green heart, mora, barramali, purple heart, crab wood, kabakali, womara. Playing house. We were left unsupervised for a lot of time in, in Guyana. And when, if you, if, if, when the mice are away, or when the cat is away, the mice will play. That's the way around. If you imagine the cat is the adult, so when they left us, we would then get up to all kinds of games. The one thing we always did was try and um, reenact adulthood as kids. Um, and in this poem, you'll hear a, a, a simple reenactment of a childhood game. We collected brown branches fallen from coconut palms, 
propped them against a tree for a center post in a tent. You brought a pinch of salt, I grabbed two handfuls of rice. You found a match, I found a tin pot. We struck up flames between stones. Half filled a pot with water, brought it to the boil, added the salt, and I licked grains stuck to your palm. We dropped the rice in after we picked it clean of stalks. Watched the pot, though we knew all about watched pots. And for plates, we used dashing leaves, and for spoons, our fingers, and we talked and talked with our mouths full about children, how many we would have, and the ratio of boys to girls. You wanted more girls, I preferred more boys, and that would have been that, were it not for the tiredness after a meal that necessitated sleep in our little tent of coconut branches. And the two of us curled up together, as we imagined we would be when we grew big and began all this building of a house and cooking and planning for children in earnest. But for now, we sleep. Finally, Damarara sugar. If you take sugar in your tea and coffee whilst here in Oxford, you'll see a number of, um, a number of, um, the Belder Brown sugar will say Damarara sugar, and the Damarara River is in Guyana, and the sugar, the sugar plantations up and down there. But Tate and Lyle is the main English company that you know deals with getting the sugar out, and um, Damarara sugar is particularly because of its the, the amount of little bit of molasses left in it gives it a particular kind of flavor, and it's quite distinct. Damarara sugar in neat sachets where each grain flows with crystal clarity, in a slalom almost of Swiss blinds, ready for my tongue. Sugar, cut by hand-swinging cutlass with half an eye kept on any snake wrapping its way around cane fields. Cane pressed for its last ounce of sap, boiled down to molasses that is cane marrow if cane were bones broken from fields for a bone feast. Demerara, whose east coast raised me from a mere stalk to stand straight, to stand tall no matter what current Help me find your grain, your flow, and Demerara sweeten me, so my art keeps your river's caveat, your sense of cane fields bathed in sweat. Right, now I'm going to go to nonfiction. I've given the, um, an essay to some of my people in my class to read it. So I'm going to give, read a little extract from, um, it's called Remembering in Fragments, A Lost Parent, but it's, it's called A Sun in Shadow. And um, I'd, I'm working on this, and it's been one of those projects that's difficult to get beyond uh, Harper's essay. But um, it was much longer before it was contracted to the 6,000 words. I'm not going to read 6,000 words now, but the 6,000 words that they published. And what I'll give you here is a, this is a very short extract from it, because the basis for writing this nonfiction piece relied on my ability to write fiction and poetry, which I brought to bear on the idea of remembering a parent that my mother refused to talk about. And the, the, the only open secret about my, my mom is that when my dad divorced her, she was still in love with him, and she refused to talk about him. So she'd play Marvin Gaye and people like that, <laughs> Roberta Flack and Hoover with passion. <laughs> and then we'd come up behind her, she wouldn't hear us as she's singing and viciously trying to get the carpet clean. And when, you, when she turned around to face us, her face would be streaming wet with tears. 
And then we'd say to her, I'd say, Mom, so you know, tell me about him. And she said, don't ask about that man. Um, but clearly, he had left a, a mark on her, and she refused to talk about him. Now, I assumed her refusal to talk would eventually lead to talk after silence, because they were both young. But when he was only, only 53, he died of a heart attack. Because I always assumed I'd catch him, and we'd be able to talk about it, about what it is that happened, and why their early courtship, and so on. So when I tried to write this essay, I tried to remember what it was that got them to leave Guyana as teenagers, well, he, was, he was 19, she was 17 or something, very, very young. He was 20, sorry, she was 17. What got them to leave Guyana to go to London in the 50s? And what kind of relationship and courtship they had in Guyana that would enable them to pull up roots and walk away from the place, the only place that they knew, get a passport and go to a place they didn't know, to swap you know, the tropics for the Ice Age, I mean, the cold of, the, of a winter, two seasons for four, and so on. So, <clears throat> so a lot of the, the device of this piece, which I'll read, the extract I'll read, is all about um, not knowing and trying to get to a point of insight and knowledge, and some kind of speculation as a device and rumination from, from nothingness. I saw King Lear last night, and one of the key lines in a very bad production of King Lear last night, one of the key, <laughs> one of the key lines in it, um, they had them all dressed up as um, Mad Max people in a post-apocalyptic, yeah. But they wrote a prequel to it, some kind of introduction they added. I think you can't add to Shakespeare, you can take away, how dare him. <laughs> but the refrain in there is always everybody saying nothing will come of nothing, speak again. And the whole idea is that if you have nothing, something can't be produced. And the whole riff of, of writing memory and writing out of you know, post-slavery narratives is exactly the opposite, which is if you have nothing, you better have a, a, a process of recall through meditation. In other words, you hear about the Atlantic, many journeys, people thrown overboard, no evidence left of them, their deaths. deaths. You see plantations and you see lavish streets named after people who cultivated plantations in the Caribbean and came back to the UK and built those empires. There's no evidence of the people who did the building. So if you were to say nothing will come of nothing and you walk away, you would lose the opportunity that it presents of absence and out of absence, rumination and a growth of something that the imagination brings into play. And so the whole piece is about that, is about when you have very slim bits of evidence, how do you grow a culture of remembering out of a fragment? A son in shadow. I know nothing about how they meet. She's a schoolgirl, he's at work, probably a government clerk in a building near her school. At the hour when school and office are out for lunch, their lives intersect at sandwich counters, soft drink stands, traffic lights, market squares. Their eyes meet or their bodies collide at one of these food queues. He says something suggestive, complimentary. She suppresses a smile or traps one, or traps one beneath her hands. He takes this as encouragement, as if any reaction of hers would have been read as anything else, and keeps on talking and following her and probably misses lunch that day. All the while she walks and eats and drinks and soaks up his praise, his sweet body talk, his erotic chatter and sexy pitter-patter, his idle boasts and ample toasts to his life, his dreams about their future, the world, their oyster together. Am I going too fast? On my father's behalf, should there have been an immediate and cutting rebuttal from her and several days before another meeting? Does he leave work early to catch her at the end of the school day and follow her home just to see where she lives and to extend the boundaries of their courtship, throwing it from day to night, from school to home, from childhood play to serious adult intent? 
Georgetown's two-lane streets with trenches on either side, mean and mostly single-file walk. She in front, probably looking over her shoulder, probably looking over her shoulder when he says something worthy of a glance. Yes, sorry, the screen is there. Is that, is that dear Vivi? No. Something worthy of a glance. Or a cut-eye look if his suggestions about her body or what he will do with it if given half a chance exceed the boundary of decorum, which is what in mid-50s Guyana. From my grandmother, it's don't talk to a man unless you think you're a big woman. Man will bring you trouble. Man wants just one thing from you. That's my translation from Guyanese talk. Don't listen to he. Don't get ruined for he. A young lady must cork her ears and keep her eyes straight in front of she when these men start to flock around. The gentleman among them will find his way to her front door. The gentleman will make contact with the parents first. Woo them first before muttering one thing to the young lady. Men who go directly to young ladies only want, only want to ruin them. Don't want to make them into respectable young women, just whores. And she's barking this into the face of my mother. Mark my words. My grandfather simply th thinks that his little girl is not ready for the attentions of any man, that none of them is good enough for his little girl. And so the man who comes to his front door had better have, let me see what he'd better have. Sorry, I always, worry when I, <laughs> I always worry when I turn the page that it will change to something better by some critic. I'd better have a good pretext for disturbing his reverie. Not to, not, that's not bad. He had better know something about merchant seamen and the character of the sea and about silence, how to keep it so that it signifies authority and dignity so when you speak you are heard and your words, every one of them, are rivets. That man would have to be a genius to get past my grandfather, a genius or a gentleman. And since my father is neither, it's out of the question that he'll ever use the front door of worship. His route will have to be the yard and the street of ruination. So he stands in full view of our house at dusk. It takes a few nights before her parents realize he is there for their daughter. And one day, her father comes out and tells him to take his dog behavior to someone else's front door. And the young man quickly turns on his heels and walks away. Another time, her mother opens the upstairs window and curses him. And he laughs and saunters off as if her words were a broom gently ushering him out of her yard. But he returns the next night and the next. And the daughter can't believe his determination. She's embarrassed that her body has been a magnet for trouble, that she is the cause of the uproar. Then angry with him for his keen regard of her at the expense of her dignity, not to mention his. Neighbors tease her about him. They take pity on the boy, offer him drinks, some ice-cold mobby, a bite to eat, a dal puri, all of which he declines at first, then dutifully accepts. One neighbor even offers him a chair, and on one night of pestilential showers, an umbrella. Since he does not budge from his spot, while all around him people dash for shelter, abandoning a night of liming, loitering, and gaffing, talking, to the persistence and chatter of the rain. Not my father. He stands his ground with only the back of his right hand up to his brow to shelter his eyes, zeroed in on her house. She steals a glance at him after days of seeming to ignore the idea of him. 
though his presence burns brightly inside her heart. She can't believe his vigilance is for her. She stops to stare in the mirror and for the first time sees her full lips, long straight nose, straight shoulder length brunette hair and dark green eyes with their slight oval shape. <coughs> Sorry. Her cheek bones, her ears close to her skull. She runs her fingers lightly over those places, as if to touch is to believe. Her lips tingle, her hair shines, her eyes smile, and she knows from this young man's perseverance that she is beautiful, desirable. She abandons herself to chores and suppresses a smile in the song. She walks past windows as much as possible to feed the young man's hungry eyes with a morsel of that which he has venerated to the point of indignity. She rewards his eyes by doing unnecessary half-turns at the upstairs window, a flash of clavicle, a hand slowly putting her, putting her hair off her face and setting it down behind her ears, and then a smile, a demure glance, her head inclined a little, her eyes raised, her eyelids batted a few times. She performs for him, though she, knows, though she feels silly and self-conscious. What else is there for a girl to do? Things befitting a lady that she picked up from the cinema, not the sauciness of a tramp. Her mother catches her one day and pulls her by one of those beautiful close sculled airs from the window and curses her as if she were a 10 cent whore, then throws open the window and hurtles a long list of insults at this tall, silent, rude, good-for-nothing streak of impertinence darkening her street. The father folds his paper and gets up, but by the time he gets to the window, the young man is gone. My mother cries into the basin of dishes. She rubs the saucer so hard that it comes apart in her hands. She is lucky not to cut herself. She will have to answer to her mother for that breakage. In the past, it meant at least a few slaps and many minutes of curses for bringing only trouble into her mother's house. Tonight, her mother is even angrier her father has turned his fury against her for rearing a daughter who is a fool for men. Her mother finds her in the kitchen holding the two pieces of the saucer together and then apart, as if her dread and sheer desire for reparation would magically weld them whole. Her tails fall <clears throat> like drops of solder on that divided saucer. Her mother grabs her hands and strikes her and curses into her face so that my mother may as well have been standing over a steaming, spluttering pot on the stove. She drops the two pieces of saucer and they become six pieces. Her mother looks down and strides over the mess with threats about what will happen if her feet find a splinter. She cries but finds every piece and to be sure to get the splinters too, she runs her palms along the floor. This way and that. And with her nails, she prizes out whatever her hand picks up. She cries herself to sleep. It wasn't an easy courtship. <laughs> but I think he, he, he sort of won her in the end, and Lynn lost, lost himself. Now, um, and, 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 but then, of course, I, I, I began writing about, about slavery, principally about plantation slavery because of living in Guyana and then going to the US. And then, because of reading Morrison and Charles Johnson's The Middle Passage, about I think it was an interview to become an American. If you're writing, you land in a new place, you read the people everywhere, and then you try to belong to the community that they present to you 
through their books. And since a lot of my writing came from reading, I'm not surprised about, about um, my engagement with history. In, in this, um, and I want to give us a chance to talk. So this short story, which is called Black Gold, I'm going to read a little bit from it. I, um, in the, well, I guess it must have been a long, the 17th, 18th century, there was a tradition, if you're an aristocrat in the UK, and I found paintings by Reynolds and Gainsborough, the two principal painters from that period, where you'd see an aristocratic family, and in the corner, the lady of the house might be resting her hand on the head of a black child. The tradition happened because it was a way to declare your wealth from the Caribbean, that you, this is, this is how you got your riches, and you're able to, you have dogs there as well, whippets and so forth, and the black child. This is your property, this is your wealth. It declared something about the family and its aristocratic roots. Then, um, you know, these paintings are very, so I, I saw the paintings and tried to kind of write about this experience. If one of the children, one of the young people in the poems could, could talk back to me, what would they say to me? Now, the English is my English planted in their skull. If I could lift their skull off and get them to kind of present to me what they're thinking. And so I have a child who is in Scotland um, writing back to a parent who is still in the plantation in Jamaica. Black gold. Mother, you should see me. I'm in a painting, a large canvas mounted in a gilded frame. And I'm wearing clothes they've allowed me to keep for special occasions. Look at me, surrounded by so much wealth, you'd think I was wealthy too. The likeness of me is as good as if I saw myself in miniature in a mirror, if a mirror could be made of paint as real as skin. But I'm small, smaller than you might think. And I'm in a crowd, but you can't miss me. I stand out like a blot of ink in a saucer of milk. I'm stationed next to the master. He holds a horsewhip, which he idly aims at me. His wife, my mistress, sticks out her arm and rests her hand on my ample head. Master and mistress sit on high chairs next to their three children while I stand. Beside me are two dogs, whippets. I'm black, and they're as white as can be. We're all dressed in fineries, befitting the success of a sugar family. I must count as one of them. After all, I'm in the picture, and they taught me to read and write, and they had me baptized. I'm on my feet while all of them sit. The painter stroked his canvas for so long I thought I would faint and drop beside the dogs, and he would just carry on with his painting, showing me asleep, nestled with the animals while the proper family sit in comfort, all of them staring into the certain future, made more certain by them because they paved a road leading to it with gold bought with sugar. I stood for three days. I remember what the light was like the whole day. Every one of those three days, as it crossed the room in a slow slide of a large brush, hauled across the entire room and everything in it. I remember the light because I never left the spot unless the artist took a break. He worked in a trance with no mind for time or the usual graces of bodily needs. I stood for him and he kept painting. Not so for the others. They walked away and strolled back when they felt like it. The master, my mistress, and the children fidgeted and complained, but not me. I had to be quiet and still the whole time. The artist stroked the canvas, and I felt good, as if his brush, brush strokes pampered me. He set us down for all time, or so I thought at the time. 
I was never so close to them as during the making of that painting. I mean, warmed by their bodies being so close to mine for such long spells, and never that close since. Smile, the artist shouted at me, smile, damn you. And the whip in my master's hand, looking drooped and without function, more like a decoration than a tool for dealing out pain, his whip reminded me with a stinging lash why I needed to keep that smile in place. I bared my teeth and held the glare of a happy look. The three siblings, two boys and a girl, surrounded me in chairs of their own. Even the two dogs are seated, but I stand almost to attention. The same reminder from the artist that drew the whip attracted other reprimands. My mistress, resting her hands on my head, should be a blessing, her prolonged touch of me. But after my master's whip, soon after, as if, as if racing with it, her hand lifted, formed a fist, and pounded me on my head. I fought hard to keep my eyes from narrowing in the skull, and the shock to my skull traveled down to my legs. But for them to buckle would mean more punishment on my head. Yet, I felt lucky at the time because I thought you, mother, would see me in a painting. And I feel luckier now with the memory of the touch of my mistress resting her hand on my scalp. I thought of you, mother, beside me, not my mistress's hand, but yours on my head, not her hand pounding my skull for unwittingly reducing my broad smile or for daring to twitch, but your warm touch. Her hand that rests on my head radiated warmth from the top of my head to the tips of my toes. I believe so much in that warmth that her hand became yours, mother. Your touch of me with all the time in the world and no end to that touch and no end to that time. I wanted my mistress's hand to stay planted on my scalp for as long as the paint would keep it that way. I believed at the time that it would be for all time. How is the plantation and life in the cane fields? Have you evaded the whip or worse? Is your head always shaded from the punishing sun with that handkerchief you like to knot at your forehead? How is your back? At the end of our day in the cane fields, I would rub your back for you. You would wash my feet and I would wash yours. Who keeps you now? Who helps you now? Child, this is all I can do for you to make you feel better. I feel better, mother. I'll do the same for you. You don't have to, I know, let me. We've nothing but each other. Mother, we've everything. Mother, I send this to you across the sea from Scotland, from clouds stitched to the ground by threads of snow, snow drawn from those clouds to the corseted earth, earth frozen and crouched low, low because a hand made of ice presses its head down. Mother, I am your daughter more and more every day. From the painting, you can see how much I look like you, like I remember you looking. Your head scarf knotted at the front in the bow might be the only thing I'm missing to be just like you. Do not worry about me, mother. This place can be very cold and wet, but it is full of warmth for me. I'm clothed and my body is warm. My stomach is full. I keep my spirits high as I look ahead to a day when we will be together again. You told me to be careful, to always keep you within my sight as if we were joined by a long rope, but not so long that I lose sight of you. I did everything with you in the corner of my eyes, just as I must have been in your eyes while we labored on the plantation, half an eye on our work, the other half on each other. The light in my eye split between day and your shape. The night in my eye split between stillness of the dark and your dark shape moving about. 
I try not to think about the day I left you. The day is the one thing in my head that I cannot shake from my attention for more than short moments. I see it as if I am not in it. Neither one of us is in it. They are just two people, a mother and her daughter, being pulled in opposite directions away from each other, so far away that the rope that joins the two breaks apart and the distance opens between them so that <clears throat> their screams lessen in each other's ears and the sea opens as well and the sound of waves drowns out my screaming of your name and I fall asleep, hoarse from crying. And my only respite is that I saw you taken from me. Mother, the rope that joins us is remade by this thought, that you are with me in a field and we fetch cane and keep each other in view as we, watch, as we watch our feet mindful of our heads in case of a swung cutlass and watching the overseer without him seeing us watching him as, we, as, as, as if we have eyes in the backs of our heads. The rope I remake to keep us in touch, apart but not lost, is the same rope of thought I know you must have for me, that I'm your daughter until your last breath, that I act as you would have me act to be safe and in good health that I keep the faith that one day this sea will part for me to walk across it and rejoin you. But today, I'm in a painting, and tomorrow the paint dries with me still there in the middle of the family who own the plantation that makes them lords and ladies in this city, and I am their proud possession. They plucked me from the plantation and from you just to put me in a show in Edinburgh and in Glasgow to show everyone here where what they own over there so far away and what sweetness they bring to everyone's lips for a price and a handsome profit. They put me on show in this painting to remind everyone who, lay, who lays eyes on this picture exactly where their wealth came from and how I'm kept well as well, as well fed as the two whippets by my side. There was one time to say anything when they came for me and told you there was no time to say anything when they came for me and told you what would become of me. That I would have, that I'd be well cared for, better than sh slaving away on a plantation. And that if you were a good mother, you would want the best for me and be proud of my new station. But you screamed and begged and I screamed and begged and kicked and scratched and had to be grabbed around my waist and pulled from the plantation and from you. They said, I was an ungrateful wretch, and you were a bad example of a mother, and unwise not to see the better station waiting for me. Mother, I stood in the painting for you. I thought you might walk into the big house one day and see it on the wall and see me there and know that I am well and keeping bright for you because one day I know I will be there with you. But the people of Scotland saw and disapproved. The taste for a slave in a family portrait soon changed. People complained that it was vulgar to be rich off the backs of a less fortunate race. And I could see how the family changed their view of me in the painting as a thing of pride to one of shame, all because of changed opinion. I wanted to tell them to please pay no attention to changing fashion, that they were absolutely right to put me in the painting because I have a rightful place in it as their property and as a child of the people who slave away all their lives for them on the sugar plantation in Jamaica. I wanted to tell those lips whispering disapproval about slavery to mind their own business and leave me in my painting. That you, mother, needed to see the picture of me and nothing should spoil your chance to be proud of your daughter who has made something of herself. For every call for abolition, 
and every expression of distaste for such a worldly display built on an immoral trade, I wanted to counter with my shout of, there is nothing wrong with the picture. I am fine with it, and it is my body, and I should have a say about what happens to me. Mother, that's how much I wanted you to see me in a painting. But the family, ever mindful of their station in society and of opinion at large, decided to paint me over and paint me out of that picture. The artist used his soft brush to paint in another whippet, a lie, a ghost dog. His hands erasing my image wielded nothing less than a wire brush on my skin. Each stroke of his hand took away my flesh, peeled my skin off my bones until I was no more, and a dog took my vacant place. I know someone has to read this letter to you, but if you imagine looking at the surface of the painting, past the wry smiles of my master and mistress with her hand resting on a dog's head, past the boredom in the faces of the children and the dogs gazing to the side, perhaps at a dove crossing the window frame, you will see, mother, the ghost of me. You will see that I'm still there looking for you. <laughs>